There is strength within sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. Yeah, you're working and are waiting. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Sing his heart. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Yes, we trust you. It's a loving king. Good morning. You're all very welcome. <clears throat> Before we start, let me mention a, a couple of uh, pieces of information for you. First of all, <clears throat> we are meeting again at 6 p.m. this evening. We'll be continuing our series on the Psalms of Ascent. This evening we're looking at Psalms 129 to 131, and we'll finish that series next Sunday night. <clears throat> so the last two Evenings we'll spend on this, and I know there is, I've heard, a big football game on later, but there is plenty of time for you to join us first, and actually it's probably good for all of us to remember that long after the football has been forgotten, the realities of Scripture will still hold true, so I hope that you can join us, uh, whatever your plans are for later in the evening, I hope you can join us uh, at six, and then a really important piece of information for you about future Sunday mornings. 
Next Sunday, it's July the 18th, will be the same as it is today, with two morning services, 9.30 and 11.15. But then the following Sunday, July the 25th, and from then on, we're moving back to just one morning service. And please note very carefully, that service is going to be at a new time, 10 a.m., so don't just think in your minds you're reverting to the old time, which I'm not going to mention because it'll stick in your heads. The new time is 10 a.m., and from the 25th, that will be our normal Sunday morning time. Sunday evenings will continue at 6 p.m. just as normal. But if you know somebody's not here this morning, please pass this on to them. Let them know so that when the 25th comes, they're not uh, caught out by it. So all I need to mention uh, by way of bringing you up to date, we've come together this morning to worship God and to worship Him together. And so today I'm going to invite you to stand with me for all our songs. And our first song is an invitation for us to join with all of creation in praising our great God. So if you'll stand with me, please, for all creatures of our God and King.
Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you as the Lord of all creation, the God of all nations. We thank you that the unity and hope we have in Christ cross borders, across boundaries of culture and background and language. We thank you, you are the God who is not bound by any kind of barriers. You're the God who is not committed to just one class of people or one kind of people. We praise you because new life in Christ is for all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Father, as we think about people we know in other places, we pray for Dorcas Harbin as she moves back to the U.S. this week. We pray for her in the upheaval of that move. We pray for uh, the move itself, but also beyond that as she seeks to continue serving you in a new situation that maybe is somewhat familiar, but will still be uh, somewhere she has to settle into. We pray that you will bless her and her, her service for you. And we also pray for the funerals that are coming up this week here in this church, Pat Salt and Mike Elliott. Father, in those times of grief, Will you show yourself to be the comforter of all kinds of people? And even through grief and loss, will you bring people to find salvation and life in Jesus? And we pray for ourselves that we will be like you in our willingness to love and care for all kinds of people and bring the message of Christ where we can to all kinds of people. And as we hear from your word this morning, will you give us hearts that are ready to receive it? Will you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Will you renew our minds and give us a new eagerness to follow Jesus our King? Amen. Jesus is our King. And we're going to have a Bible reading now that highlights the contrast between the kind of king Jesus came to be and the kind of king his disciples expected him to be. And there was a great contrast. It's Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit, on your, uh, sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those verses tell us what our next song is talking about when it says, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. If you'll stand with me, please. Thank you. 
Our Sunday school are going to be moving next door. During the last 16 months, the news has been dominated by just one thing. That was up until a couple of weeks ago when it's been dominated by just one different thing with the football. But previously to that, it was all about the pandemic, nearly exclusively. And the pandemic has been covered from every angle imaginable and some that are not even imaginable. But I think one of the most interesting bits of the story has been how shocked the government was when it all started. And I don't mean they were shocked by the arrival of a global pandemic. That had been expected for quite some time. What the government found shocking was how easily we all accepted their authority and did what they told us to do. They have admitted that in all their planning, They had assumed a full-scale lockdown would never work. The public just wouldn't do it. Now, as we all know, we did do it. And I have no interest this morning in discussing the pluses or the minuses of that, or the pluses or minuses of lockdown itself. The interesting point is that our reaction was so surprising to the government. Before the pandemic, all the evidence told them We are people who do not like submitting to authority. And I think they're right. In the case of COVID, the government probably hadn't reckoned on the part that fear would play. That changed things. That made us more willing to submit to authority. But aside from the fear factor, their assumption was right. As a people, we do not like being under authority. As a society... Our general attitude is, no one can tell me what to do with my life. No one can tell me how to live. No one can tell me what to do with my money, what to do with my body. And how dare anyone try to tell me what I can and can't do? The poem Invictus has become a kind of life motto for many people. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And as Christians, I think, we can take on that same attitude without even realizing it. We can start living with the assumption that it's just nobody else's business how I live my life. And if that is our assumption, then sparks begin to fly pretty quickly when we start reading the Bible. Because the core assumption of the Bible is that you and I are not the captains of our souls. It assumes there is someone who can, in fact, tell us how to live. The Bible tells us our lives, our bodies, our money, and our time are all under God's authority. It tells us you and I either accept that reality and flourish or we fight against that reality and we destroy ourselves. As Christians, the culture around us affects us more than we realize. 
And the measure of how we've been affected is how much we resist the Bible when it tells us how to live. Or how we quietly ignore the Bible when it tells us how to live. We've all drunk in the idea that we are the masters of our faith and the captains of our souls. But we cannot call ourselves God's people if we deny him authority over our lives. Because God's people are a people under authority. That's something you and I need to come to terms with. And it's something the Israelites needed to come to terms with as they prepared to cross the Jordan River and begin a new life in Canaan. That's the situation of the book of Deuteronomy. So turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 16. And we're going to pick up at chapter 16 verse 18 and read through to the end of chapter 17. The passage we're going to read is about judges and it's about the king. But it is not addressed to the judges or the king. These words are for all the people. So Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar that you build to the Lord your God. And do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord your God gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant and contrary to my command has worshipped other gods bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky and this has been brought to your attention then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to what they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. 
Anyone who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God is to be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This is God's word. And the passage we've just read divides into two sections. In chapter 16, verse 18, through to chapter 17, verse 13, we hear about the leaders we need. Then in chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, we hear about the king we need. And in both sections, the people are told to appoint these authority figures. And in both cases, they are to appoint authority figures who themselves live under God's authority. First of all, Moses describes the leaders God's people need. Look at chapter 16, verse 18. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Or we, we should probably translate that last word, righteously. To be righteous is to be right in God's eyes. These leaders are to lead in ways that please God. And you and I might think, okay, so the Israelites were to appoint judges and officials who were like that, but we don't get to choose our judges and officials. In the UK, judges are appointed by the queen on the advice of the Prime Minister who receives recommendations from a selection commission. I had to look that up. That's how it happens, and what it means is you and I have no input at all into that. So maybe we think, well, okay, maybe when we read the word officials, we should think of local councillors or MPs. And yes, we do get to vote for them, but we all know the Christian vote is never going to be decisive in those elections. So we might think, surely here we've hit a part of Deuteronomy that was important in ancient Israel, no doubt, but it doesn't have any application for us. 
Because we are not able to appoint leaders who lead in ways that please God. We might think that, but let's remember what we've seen in previous chapters of this book. How does the New Testament apply passages like these? Well, what we've seen is it applies them to the church. Back in chapter 13, we heard Israel being told there to purge the evil from among you. And they were to do that by executing people who tried to lead them away from the Lord. And when we read that, we turned to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. And we saw how that principle was applied to the church. The church has not been given the sword of God's justice. In that sense, we are unlike ancient Israel. God has not given the church the authority to execute wrongdoers. But the church is like Israel in that we're not to tolerate unrepentant sin among God's people. The church purges the evil from amongst it by putting defiant, unrepentant sinners out of membership. And so here in chapter 16, we can expect this to apply to the church also. And in fact, we get a clue to the application when we realize that verse 18 could be translated, appoint judges and overseers in every time. Overseer is one of the words the New Testament uses for church leaders, elders. And in his letter to Titus in the New Testament, Paul instructs him to appoint elders in every time. So the way for you and me to tune into this passage is to hear it not as a call to try and get Christians into local or national government, although that is a fine thing to aim for, but you and I tune into the wavelength of this passage when we apply it to local church leadership. Sometimes you and I have a hard time figuring out what should we be looking for in our church leaders? And when we think about future leaders, what should we be looking for? A big personality? Strong public speaking gifts? Someone who's everybody's mate? Somebody who's always affirming? Who always agrees with you? What? Well, this passage tells us the leaders we need are leaders who follow righteousness and righteousness alone. That quotation on the screen is taken from verse 20, which in the NIV reads, follow justice and justice alone. But the word is normally translated righteousness. And as in verse 17, that is the best translation here too. What the church needs and what ancient Israel needed is leaders whose number one concern is to please God. And so they are committed to leading in ways that please God. The church needs leaders who are willing to disappoint and even anger people if that is what it takes to please God. And that comes out here in verse 19. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. 
The leaders of God's people cannot afford to cater to their friends or to those who give the most or those who are most likely to give the most or those with powerful personalities. The leaders of God's people cannot afford to cater to people in those ways. And the New Testament, the book of James, picks up on this point. James warns the church not to show partiality, in particular, to the wealthy. Look what he says. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I can't prove this, of course, but I would not be surprised if James had our passage in Deuteronomy in mind when he wrote those words. He even uses the word judges. And James agrees with Deuteronomy that the way of righteousness is not to prioritize one kind of person over another. Not only is that unfair, it also gives the impression that God cares about one kind of person over another. That he somehow favors those who are successful by society's standards. And that he has less time for those who are at the bottom of the ladder by society's standards. But in fact, riches and success don't count with God. He couldn't care less what our position in the company is. Or how big our bank balance is. Or how many followers we have on Twitter. And if we have failed to impress or make a mark on society, God doesn't look down his nose at us because of that. Someone has said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that's true. When it comes to our standing with God, wealth and success don't give you a leg up, and poverty and failure don't put you at a disadvantage. We all come to him the same way, poor and naked, with nothing in our hands, needing his gracious forgiveness. And in the church, we need to show that in the way we treat people. All of us are called to this, and we need leaders who lead without partiality. So when you look around for potential future leaders in the church, look for people like that. People who love and help everyone, not just the lovable and attractive and well-positioned people. Following righteousness and righteousness alone means leading without favoritism. And look for leaders who care more for God's honor than they do about anything else. That's what the next section of our passage is about. Committed to God's honor. 
At first glance, though, these next verses might seem to be out of place. Why is this section on punishing idolatry plunked in the middle of the stuff about judges and overseers? But it's not out of place at all. The section starting in verse 21 is about the ultimate concern of those who follow righteousness and righteousness alone. It's the concern that the true and living God be given the honor and worship he deserves. That glory and worship is not stolen away from him and given to anyone or anything else. If God's people are not to show partiality in the way they treat others, we are certainly to show partiality towards God and his glory. We're not to value anything or anyone else the way we value him. Sometimes the church has fallen into the mistake of behaving as if people and what people want are more important than God and what he wants. We have a natural tendency as human beings to make ourselves the center of the universe. But in reality, God is the center of the universe. And our life as God's people must reflect that. We are here ultimately to give glory to him. That is the main thing. And yes, one way we do that is by treating people without favoritism. Because that is the way God treats us. We also give glory to God by making him the one and only object of our worship. By denying rival gods any place among God's people. And here in our passage, that takes the form of rejecting idols themselves in verse 21. And in the rest of the passage, by executing those who defiantly worship idols. Notice in chapter 17, verse 4, this is not something that's to be done in a hurry. It's not to be done in a fury of emotion just because an accusation has been made. No, the Israelites are told, if someone is accused of idol worship, you must investigate it thoroughly. Make sure it's true and accurate. And if it proves to be true, verse 6 says, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. The reason the witnesses must throw the first stone is to avoid any personal grievances or grudges coming into play. So you can't just accuse someone and then quietly step back while others carry out the sentence. If you're going to make a serious allegation, you have to be willing to publicly see it through. And as we've seen just a few minutes ago, God's people today no longer have this responsibility. So it's not that the church should be doing this, but we know we'd never get away with it. Not at all. The New Testament tells us it is not our responsibility to do this. We no longer have the sword of God's justice in our hands. If there is ever to be any form of capital punishment, that is in the hands of the government, not the church. 
But as we saw in Corinthians, the church has the same responsibility to purge the evil from its midst. And that means we need a willingness to remove from membership in the church those who defy God and his word and who insist on continuing in that defiance. Because we all sin and fall short. But when a member of the church chooses a lifestyle of sin and idolatry, even after a long process of being challenged about it, when they prefer disobedience to obedience, then finally the church is concerned to follow righteousness and righteousness alone will lead them to remove that member. Defiance of God is the concern of all God's people. And the church needs leaders who love God's honor enough to lead in this way. Not to do it with relish, but not to apologize for it either. Because God's people don't apologize for putting him first. We don't apologize for wanting him to be given his rightful place. We don't apologize for wanting to see every false God torn down. So when you look for future leaders of the church, look for people who care more about God's honor than about anything else. And that leads us to the last part of this first section. Up to this point, we've been hearing about the responsibility of each local group of God's people. But look how it shifts in verse 8. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire of them, and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you, to the right or to the left. It's significant that local judges and overseers are expected to know what to do when it comes to idolatry. When it comes to false worship, a failure to give God his rightful place, they don't need to ask about that. Verse 8 says where they might need some help is with cases of bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults. In other words, disputes between people. They can be much harder to resolve. And notice how when help is needed, the difficult case is brought not to a central law court, it's brought to the one place of worship, the place we've been hearing about for the last few chapters. And probably when verse 9 says, go to the Levitical priests and to the judge, the sense is not that there will be priests and then a separate judge, Verse 9 seems to be saying the priests will be the judge in this instance. And in terms of how they arrive at the verdict, I don't see any indication that they seek some special new revelation from God to solve the issue. 
the assumption seems to be that because they are priests, they can be expected to know God's instruction so well and so thoroughly that they can see how it applies to the case in front of them. A bit further on in our passage, we're going to be told that the priests are responsible to preserve the definitive written copy of God's law. So while the local judges and overseers are also supposed to make decisions in accordance with God's word, they may have to seek help at times from those who know God's word better than they do. And when that answer from God's word comes, the local judges and overseers are to act according to it. So again, applying this to God's people today. What do we do when we don't know what to do? Where do we go looking for help? We go to God's Word. We don't look for new revelation from God. We seek a better understanding of the revelation He has already given us. And we seek to apply that to the difficulty in front of us. And we need leaders who have that same approach. Now, I know there is wisdom to be found in lots of places. I agree with that. As Christians, we can learn from how businesses work. We can learn from the insights of psychology and sociology. But as Christians, our first and our final source of help and wisdom is God's Word. Scripture. We start with Scripture, and any things from elsewhere that might seem to be helpful, we subject those to the test of Scripture. And if Scripture disagrees with those other sources of wisdom, then we ditch those other sources of wisdom. All too often, God's people have said that Scripture is their source of wisdom and guidance, but in practice, Scripture has been sidelined. The actual source of wisdom and guidance has been whatever the latest trendy thinking is in counseling or education, management or whatever. But we need to have confidence in Scripture. We need to trust God's Word enough to truly be guided by it. Even when it's out of step, with whatever the trendy thinking is. And we need leaders who will set the example for us in this. So when you're looking for future leaders in the church, look for people who have a deep confidence in the timeless, living Word of God. Who truly accept its divine authority who seek their wisdom and guidance from Scripture. Following righteousness and righteousness alone means being submitted to God's Word. So much for God's people then and their judges and overseers. The second section of our passage deals with a different figure, the king. Up to this point in their history, Israel has not had a king. But in verse 14, Moses looks forward to a time when they will. 
He says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. So it's the Lord, not the people, who will choose the king. Just as it's the Lord who will choose the one place of worship. And this king will be from among your fellow Israelites. Literally, he will be from among your brothers. He will not be a usurper. He will be your true and rightful king. And he will be unlike every other king. Look at verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Those verses describe the standard marks of success for a king in the ancient world. Great numbers of horses equated to military power. Many wives equated to political power because marrying members of other royal families was what cemented treaties and alliances. And large amounts of silver and gold obviously meant financial power, the ability to live in luxury and opulence. But there was a dark side to all of that. Because silver and gold were largely accumulated through heavy taxation of the people. Foreign wives brought their idols with them into the palace. As the text says, they lead the king's heart astray with their false worship. And importing horses from Egypt could lead to a new dependence on the nation God has freed them from through the exodus. But God's chosen king will turn his back on all of that. His reign will not be characterized by what the world around him counts as success. Look what will characterize God's chosen king. Verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This king will carefully follow all the words of the Lord all the days of his life. And he will not lord it over his fellow Israelites, his brothers. This is the king God's people need. The king whose lifelong motivation is, I desire to do your will, my God. 
Did Israel ever get this king? Well, that quotation on the screen is from King David in Psalm 40. And it perfectly sums up the description here in Deuteronomy. And no doubt David did desire to live by God's word. But he certainly didn't do it all the days of his life. In his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, David turned from God's instruction. And he abused his fellow Israelites. And although David's son Solomon did many great things, a lot of them greater than what his father David had done, including building the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the writer of 1 Kings tells us Solomon was up to his neck in all three of the things God's king was not to be involved in. Accumulating horses, accumulating wives, and accumulating large amounts of silver and gold. And then after Solomon, the history of Israel's kings was largely a history of rejecting God's word. With no attempt at all to follow it carefully. There were a few little bright spots in the history of the kings, but they were pretty short-lived. In fact, after Moses spoke these words in Deuteronomy 17, it took about 1,400 years before a king finally arose in Israel who did not come to be served, but to serve. A king who was not seduced by power or wealth or any kind of idol, even when the devil himself came and tempted him with those things. This king soaked himself in the scriptures from his earliest days. And as an adult, when he spoke, scripture poured out of him. And not only did he know God's word, he followed it perfectly. He was truthfully able to say, I always do what pleases the Lord. That king was Jesus Christ. And God the Father showed his approval of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the king we need. And following Jesus means following him in his commitment to learn and follow God's word carefully. It is absolutely ludicrous for people to say, as they sometimes do say, I just follow Jesus, not the Bible. That is a ludicrous thing to say because Jesus lived his entire life following the Bible. We cannot follow Jesus unless we join him in that. And as we follow Jesus, we begin to learn he is not a king who came to lord it over his people. As we noticed a minute ago, Mark's gospel tells us Jesus is the king who did not come to be served, but to serve. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He came to share in our humanity. He became one of us in order to suffer in our place 
and lead us to a better place. It is no burden to come under the rule of King Jesus. When we get to know the King God has given us, we realize it is no burden to be a people under this good and loving authority. And so this week, let's not fall for the lie that we can be master of our fate and captain of our soul. We can't. And when we try, it ends in disaster. Let's remember this week that a truly successful life is a life submitted to God's authority, following His chosen King. Let's pray and let's work to be people like that. And let's pray and look for leaders in the church who will lead us in obedience to God's Word. Pray that as the current elders of the church, we will grow in this. And let's pray for future leaders in this church and please in the national church. Leaders who more than anything else want to see God's name honored. And who live with God's written word as their first and final authority. Let's ask God in his mercy to give us that. As God's people, God's authority is something for us to celebrate. And our final song is a celebration of God's authority. So stand with me, please, for behold our God.
And now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.